Socrates, after all, said that the unexamined life was not worth living. He might have added, however, that continual self-examination would leave us no time to live. In the period I recount here, I was as busy as a fundamentally slothful man can ever be, and scarcely thought at all. As you grow older, you are forcibly reminded of your essential personality more and more often. When I am living alone with my work at my flat in London, I breakfast off a pot of coffee and two slices of unadorned toast. The aim is to control my weight, and it works. My weight remains controlled at about fifty pounds above the level that my doctor recommends as the maximum for continued life. But even though the plan goes reasonably well on the whole, it goes wrong enough in detail to remind me that there is a defective mind doing the planning. Somewhere between every fourth and fifth breakfast, on average, I leave the toast toasting in the toaster, while I go to my desk in the next room for a quick fiddle with that paragraph that got stuck in a tangle at three o'clock in the morning. How about making a regular sentence out of that bit in brackets? And then what about putting this bit before that bit instead of after? I am still fiddling when I notice that there is something strange about the air around me. It has turned bluish-gray as if it had been piped in from the Battle of Jutland. Back in the kitchen, I lever two jet-black slices of carbon out of the toaster. Still in my ratty dressing gown, I start a process of opening windows and waving the smoke through them with a wet tea towel. You will ask why I don't buy an automatic toaster, and the answer is that I have, several times, but they all broke. I have a cupboard full of their corpses, each preserved in case the plug should come in handy. Here is yet more proof that I remain, as I approach the last lap of my life, someone who, left to himself, would die of exposure even on a warm day. Even as a freelance journalist, I had depended on editorial supervision, lest my unrestrained enthusiasm lead me into the law courts and the publication I was attached to into bankruptcy. In Fleet Street there was always backup within reach, only a few desks away. In television, the backup is right there in the room with you. As I completed the transfer of my main effort from the old Observer building at the north end of Blackfriars Bridge to LWT's stubby skyscraper across the river on the south bank, suddenly I was surrounded. I was never alone except in the toilet, where I soon found that locking myself into a cubicle was not much protection from hearing myself talked about by young men standing at the urinals. Jesus, he's looking rough. And it's only Monday. The Clive James on television half-hour show was not only still running, it was about to be upgunned to the status of a full-hour Sunday night primetime spectacular, starring myself seriously positioned behind a desk instead of perched in a white plastic egg-cup chair. I rapidly discovered the television rule of thumb by which twice as long on screen computes to four times as long in the office. If you're on screen for an hour a week and writing your own stuff, you can kiss your home life goodbye for four days out of any seven. Richard Drewitt, in charge of my support personnel, told me to get used to the idea that it wouldn't be only four days. It would be five. Four days to accomplish what we were currently doing— and another day to prepare for what we would do next. The emphasis was on the we, not the I. There was a whole open-plan office full of beavering producers, assistant producers, and researchers. 
All these people were dedicated to making me look clever. Thus, I was inducted early into a principle about television that was to affect my life for the next two decades. You have to be there. After twenty years of it, I was to grow exhausted. Exhaustion, however, will be a subject for later on. For now, you have to imagine me being relatively young, in my merest early forties, and entirely keen. It was, after all, the madly glamorous medium of television. Intelligent, civilized people were willing to give their lives to it. Richard, for example, could have been an establishment figure had he so wished. He had the well-schooled background, he had the perfect manners, he was elegant from top to toe, and he could also play several musical instruments to a high standard, but only other musicians knew it. Richard was one of those few people who can do almost everything, and one of the even fewer who don't tell you. The old